If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn with me to Exodus, the 12th chapter. Now, see, some of you are in a, a quandary because you got your phone in your hand on Facebook Live, and then you're like, well, I, that's also what I use for my Bible. And see, I've been trying to break you of that and get you back on the, the, the real Bible, and you didn't do it, and now here you are. But hopefully you can find a Bible. If not, it will be uh, on, the, on the screen. And we're going to read um, Exodus chapter 12. That's the second book of the Bible. And we're going to start in the 21st verse, and we're going to go all the way to the 32nd verse. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the, in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, he has promised you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worship. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us, your word that is very relevant to our lives. We hold in our in our laps, we hold in our hands, we've read on a screen a a text of scripture that is, that's ancient and yet it's as, it's as fresh and it's as new and it's as relevant as today or even tomorrow's newspaper will be, Lord. And so, Lord, may you come by the power of your spirit and may you apply your word to our hearts. Lord, certainly you know our hearts. We've never experienced anything like what we're going through now, that there is upheaval in our hearts and concern in our hearts and fear in our hearts and anxiety in our hearts. And in this moment, would you, would you be Jesus, the balm of Gilead? Will you be a balm to anxious hearts? Will you be a voice that cries out louder than the voice of the news? Will you come, Lord, and will you, will you soothe us with your word? Will you remind us who are Christians that, Lord, that nothing happens apart from your sovereignty? Everything is in your control. 
that you're working together all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. May we rest in those truths, Lord. And Lord, may we, may we together, may we have assurance of our salvation. And Lord, for those who may be tuning in, who may be watching even now, who have yet to place faith in you, Lord, would you work? Your spirit knows no bounds. Would your spirit move upon their hearts and draw them into a saving relationship with you? May we know, may we be assured of your coming judgment. Your judgment that's stronger and much more than COVID-19. And Lord, may we know of the substitute that is your son that you provided for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let me, first of all, let me just say this. This text of scripture, that it is descriptive of what God has done um, in, the, in Egypt in this particular time, that it is more descriptive than it is prescriptive for us and how to deal with a global pandemic. Like I've seen some of the memes that have popped up on Facebook that kind of uh, show this of the, of the spreading of the blood to cross over the plagues, but we didn't choose this because it speaks about plagues. And I don't know if COVID-19 is a plague or not, but let me just say this, that even though this is descriptive and takes place in time, it is no doubt that it uh, gives us comfort and assurance in this time of uncertainty then in uncertain times, this text of scripture, it reminds us of the certainty of God. It reminds us, as I've already said, of God's certainty of his sovereignty, the certainty of his care, the certainty of his compassion, the certainty of his love, the certainty of his glory, that God is working everything, including COVID-19 for his glory and the good of his people and it reminds us even of God's certainty of his salvation. And for those of us who are believers in Christ and have been redeemed by him, it gives us hope and it gives us assurance that nothing, including COVID-19, nothing can come our way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, last week we started over into the book of Exodus. We closed out in the book of Genesis and now we're into the book of Exodus. And what we saw last week is the children of Israel, the Israelites, that they are in Egypt and they've been in Egypt for some 400 years, maybe even longer. And out of fear, Pharaoh has, he has enslaved the, uh, the, the Israelites. The fear comes because of God's blessing, that God is doing what God said he would do. He's blessing his people. He's multiplying his people. They've gone from Abraham and Sarah who could have no children to multitudes and multitudes of people so that the, the, the greatest superpower in the world today is now threatened by God's blessing. And so Pharaoh, he, he enslaves the people. He orders for the, for the firstborn to be murdered and on and on it goes. And so the people, they are in turmoil and they're suffering and they've cried out to God. And what uh, Moses said, or what God spoke to Moses from the burning bush last week, and God has said that I have heard the cries of my people. I've seen their suffering and their affliction and I have come down. I have come down and he's appeared to Moses in a burning bush. God has come down in order, as he said, to deliver his people out of slavery, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of Egypt to set them free, but he's freed them in order that they may serve him. They've been freed from slavery or they're about to be freed from slavery in Egypt, but they are being served in order to, I mean, they're being uh, set free. They're being delivered in order to serve him, in order to worship God. 
to make sacrifices to God, that God is delivering his people out of slavery and he is delivering them to himself to serve him and to worship him and to make sacrifices for him. And that is the why God is delivering them. He's delivering them as he calls them back into covenant relationship with himself. That's why God is delivering him. Today, we wanna focus in on the how God is delivering them. And God is delivering his people in such a way, in such a way showing and flexing his might that only for only he to get the glory. God is delivering his people in such a way that his power and his glory are being put on display so that there is no doubt that it is God who has delivered them. He does this by sending 10 plagues upon Egypt. Now make no mistake, this is God who is doing this. And these plagues aren't just random plagues. It's not like God is in heaven spinning the wheel of plagues into heaven. Oh, it clicks on frogs. So here's a bunch of frogs. That's not what God is doing at all. What God is doing is God is confronting and God is, is destroying and defeating the false gods of the Egyptians. See, what God is doing is he's, he's delivering, he's getting the Israelites out of Egypt. And that actually won't take a lot of power in order for him to do that. But then what God will do, have to do over the next 40 years is he'll have to get Egypt out of, his, out of Israel. He'll have to get the Egypt out of his people. And it begins with the defeat of the false gods of Egypt through the plagues. The first nine plagues are covered in Exodus chapter seven through 10. The true to what God says in Romans one, that they, the, here it would apply to the Egyptians, they worship creation and not the creator who is blessed forever. That they worship creation, they worship the Nile. And so what God does is he turns it and all other water sources into blood. They worshiped animals. They had certain gods and goddesses that they gave as, a, as that looked like animals. One of them was a happy, H-A-P-I, and that is a, a frog goddess. It related to their fertility. And that's why God sends a plethora of frogs. So many frogs that frogs are everywhere. They're sick of frogs. And then all the frogs die and they got to pile them up. And the whole land of Egypt stinks because of those frogs. It's God defeating that false god. Then came gnats and then flies and then livestock. God kills all the Egyptian livestock, horses and donkeys and camels and herds and the flocks. All of these plagues are coming. God attacks them physically. He attacks their health and their vitality. It's taken from them through boils. He destroys their crops, their income, their future through hail and locusts. They worship the sun. It was an Egyptian god, Ray, and he blots out the sun and gives a darkness that covers the land. He says a darkness that can be felt, this heavy darkness that covers the land, pitch darkness for three days, and then the last plague comes. And it's the plague of the death of the firstborn son in every house in Egypt, which brings us to our text. Let me give you four words that will help you as we work our way through this text of scripture. The first four words are this, judgment, substitution, deliverance, and lastly, remembrance. Now, let me say this. This is the defining moment for Israel. The foundation of the relationship with God will be defined by what God does over the next few, like 24 hours. What God will do in the Passover and in the crossing of the Red Sea, that is the defining relationship between God and his people. And it brings us to that first word. And the first word is judgment. 
the death of the firstborn. The first question that maybe we can ask of the text is this, would be, why death? Why is it that God would kill? Why does God bring death? I thought God works in life. Well, here is why, because the wages and the consequences of sin is death. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two, that whenever God spoke to Adam and Eve, he told them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but except for this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. It's what Paul says in Romans 6, that the wages, the penalty for sin is death. And what we have here is God's judgment for sin has come. That's what this points to, that what we have on this one night is God's judgment coming to Egypt, God's divine judgment. In verse number 12, uh, in chapter, I'm sorry, ch- chapter 12, verse 23, he says, the Lord has come. He's the, it's the destroyer. It will let the destroyer in, the death angel. All of this is coming from God. That God is delivering people over to his judgment. Why the firstborn then? Well, the firstborn male is a huge deal in this culture, especially. Firstborn son carries the name, it carries the lineage, it carries the blessing. The the family blessing and wealth is being transferred to that firstborn. And what God is doing is he's wiping out an entire generation. He's causing a fracture in their existence, a fracture in their family lineage. Why is he doing this like this? Well, also I think it could be applied that He's doing this because Egypt and Pharaoh is messing with God's firstborn. And in Exodus chapter four, God has declared that Israel is my firstborn. And and what the Egyptians and what Pharaoh is doing by enslaving and mistreating um, Israel is uh, is he's messing with God's firstborn. And when you mess with the cub, you get the bear. And that's what's happening here. They're messing with the cub and now they're getting the bear. They got a deal with the parent, and God is always protective of his people. But I also want to make note that this plague is different than the other nine plagues. In the other nine plagues, there has been provision for the Israelites. The Israelites have pretty much been untouched and spared by the plagues. They've hit Egypt, but the particular place where uh, the Israelites lived, it has been spared. I mean, imagine trying to be the meteorologist that predicts the hailstorm coming. It says, it's going to be hail all across Egypt, except for right here in this one little spot called Goshen. No hail's going to come there. And that's kind of what's been happening up until this point. But here, this final plague, Israel will not be spared. Judgment is coming to the entire land of Egypt. The death angel, the destroyer, the Lord is going to cross over. In every household in Egypt, there will be death. Now, maybe I've been watching too much of our governor, Andy Bashir's press conferences. I don't think I've missed one yet, but I do have a graphic that I think could be helpful. Kenneth, if you'll put that graphic up. This illustrates all of the homes in Egypt. The next illustration, Kenneth, if you would, is the houses in Egypt when there will be death. Notice every household, something will die. Let's even break it down by ethnicity, by religion. Let's break it down between the Israelite families and the Egyptian families. Next slide, please. Notice the Egyptian homes, all. There will be death in every Egyptian home and there will be death in every Israelite home. This shows us, like I want to bring this to our attention because this shows us the totality of sin. That both pagan Egyptians 
and religious Israelites, they are both under the condemnation, under God's just condemnation for sin. Both the oppressed and the oppressor is under God's just judgment. There are no victims in God's justice system. There are only perpetrators. As even Paul writes, there is no distinction. Romans chapter three, and we'll get back to that later. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I bring that out also just to remind us that the truth is, is that most people, they do not feel as if they're worthy of God's condemnation. See, what most of us do is we, we measure ourselves when it comes to our morality or when it comes to our religion. We measure ourselves horizontally rather than vertically. We measure ourselves to other men. And what we do is we say, well, you know what? I'm not as bad as this person or that person. I'm not as bad of a parent as this person that I saw on Facebook, what they said about their parent or what they fed their child or whatever that may be. But what we see here in this plague that God is making it perfectly clear that unless you are under the blood, you will perish. Whether you're religious or irreligious, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And when the Bible says all, God means all. Doesn't matter if you're the Pope, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, your grandma, it doesn't matter that certainly this includes you and me, all means all, all fall under the judgment of God, which brings us to our next point, the good news. And the good news is a substitution. Provision is offered and provided by God. That God gives Moses, who gives the elders, very specific instructions. God is about to unleash the most unstoppable force known to man, his judgment, the death angel, the destroyer, that he's gonna slice through the strongest military power known in that time. He will slice through it like a knife through butter. And the only way God says to protect yourself is to take a lamb. Like, is there any more less intimidating animal than a lamb? Take a lamb, an animal that's meek and mild. Take this lamb and this lamb will protect you against this force. He says, take this lamb that each household is to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb. If your household is too small to consume a whole lamb, then get with another smaller household and then take this lamb, a male from either the sheep or the goats and bring him into your home and keep him there for four days. Now the Bible doesn't really say why God would give instructions as to why we should keep, why they were to keep the lamb in their home for four days. I think what God is saying is, I want you to become acquainted with this lamb. Don't just tie him out, tie him up out back. Just don't pin him into a pasture somewhere, but bring him into your lamb, bring him into your home so you become acquainted with him. Spend time with it so that when you slaughter it, there's pain. Remember what Moses has already said everything you're doing here will be an instruction to your children. So when your children ask, what do we mean by doing this? You can tell them. And even in this, we see that there's pain involved when there's sacrifice. There's no sacrifice apart from pain, from suffering, from sadness, and not just the pain or the suffering of the animal, but of the whole family. That as the, as the family comes together around the Passover table, that they will know that either their son or their brother or even themselves, that child, would know that they're alive today because of the sacrifice 
of the lamb. The instructions follow as this, take the lamb at twilight, you're to kill the lamb, slaughter it, take some of the blood from the lamb, put it in a basin, take a, take a hyssop, which is basically just a, a bushy branch and dip it and then touch the, the doorpost and then touch the lintel of your home. Apply that blood there. Then go inside and make a meal out of the lamb, roast it over a fire, eat the flesh, roast it whole, eat all of it, don't discard any, don't leave any. The entire lamb is to be consumed. If you can't consume it all, then burn the re what remains in the fire. Eat it with some unleavened bread and some bitter herbs. It brings out the principle of substitution. That's what's happening here is God is providing an alternative payment for the debt that sin has caused. The wages for sin is death. And in every household, there is death, either the death of the firstborn son or the death of a substitute lamb. A payment for sin is always required. And that night, the death angel, as he came anywhere, as he came over the land of Egypt, anywhere that he saw the blood, he, he passed over that home. And he did so because an acceptable substitute had been offered and applied. Brings us to a third word, which is deliverance, that God delivers his people. Look at verse number 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Again, there is, God is no respecter of persons when it comes to his judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse number 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go and serve the Lord as you have said, take your livestock, your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. That night God delivered his people two times. First, he delivered them from the judgment of God by by providing an acceptable substitute, an acceptable sacrifice in the lamb. And the second time he delivered his people, he delivered them by that judgment. And it's through that judgment that they are delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And this is the defining moment, as I said. This is a defining moment of Israel, which brings us to our last word, the word of remembrance. We can jump back up and look at verse number 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land and that land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and they worship. That God institutes through this Passover, he institutes a yearly reminder, a yearly meal, a yearly ceremony that would, hap that would, that would happen. In fact, this is how their year began. That for most of us, our year begins on our broken promises of what we want to do for God. And they began their year with a memorial meal that would remind them of what God had done for them that God had provided an acceptable sacrifice and had rescued and delivered them from the slavery of Egypt, which brings us to the gospel. It brings us to Jesus, 
that as we've read this and as we study this and as we see this Passover meal, that the gospel of Jesus, it shines so brightly as Stephen Lawson would say, even a blind man could see this. Even a deaf man could hear the gospel as it's being uh, spoken and read through the Passover. And when Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus crosses over into the Jordan. He sees John the Baptist is there uh, baptizing people, preaching repentance and baptizing people. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, John the Baptist says this, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus, just hours before his death, Jesus will tell his disciples. He will tell them that I've desired to eat a Passover meal with you. And he will say, go into an upper room. And there I want you to prepare a Passover meal. And then it is there that Jesus will instruct his disciples to eat a new and revised Passover meal. And as you read the account of what Jesus is doing there in that upper room with his disciples, there's something that is is striking in this. It's striking in what is absent in the new revised Passover meal that Jesus is instituting with his disciples. And you go through the list of the elements that are there and there's one primary element that's missing in in that meal that he shares with his disciples. Nothing is mentioned in any of the gospel accounts about a lamb. And it seems as if it's the central the, the central element in the Passover is this lamb who will be slain and cut and his flesh be roasted and burnt and, and then eaten and consumed and his blood to be applied. And there's nothing mentioned in the New Testament gospel accounts as Jesus institutes this Passover meal with his disciples about a lamb. And the reason was, was there may have not been a lamb on the table because there was a lamb at the table. That Jesus takes the role of the presider. Usually the presider in the Passover ceremony would be the father. And Jesus stands up as the provider. Jesus says nothing about the lamb, but he takes a piece of bread, a piece of the unleavened bread. And he takes this bread and he says, this represents my body. That just as that Passover lamb's flesh would be ripped and then consumed, Jesus says, this is my body and it will be broken for you. Those of you as part of the Point Community Church that are prepared to take the Lord's Supper, then you can take a piece of the bread and break it as we remember, even in this moment, that it's Christ's body that is broken for us. As he takes this and gives it to his disciples, he tells them, take it and eat it. Consume all of it. He takes the cup. He says, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant. Take it and drink it. It's not something that would be applied to the outside of the home, but it's something that will be taken into us something that we will take and we will drink and it will come into us. I'm gonna draw our attention to Romans, the third chapter. We're gonna look at the 23rd through the 25th verses. Paul writes this, as we've already said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, by faith. I want to draw your attention to three words in this text of scripture. The first word is the word justified. It means made just. That God's justice has been satisfied. We sometimes say it means that, well, what's justified mean? Well, it means that just if I'd never sinned. And that's partially true, but we can add another part to that. Justified, never sinned, and have always lived perfectly righteous before God. That's what justified means. What we see here is that we have been justified. And how have we been justified? Well, by his grace as a gift. God's grace is God's undeserved favor. It is a gift. A gift is something that is given, not earned. Its wages are earned. An allowance is earned, but a gift is given. It's a gift that he gives to those who will receive it. It isn't substantiated by our feelings alone. This gracious gift comes as a transaction. It comes as a work through, he says, redemption, which brings us to the next word. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the redemption that Christ has performed, that Christ has done. Redemption means to be bought back, that your worth is restored. A slave is redeemed and he has redeemed us out of the slavery and the bondage of our sin. He has brought us back and our worth is restored. Christ has bought us. He has purchased us by his life, by his death. Purchase us from the penalty of our sin. We've been twice delivered. We've been redeemed. We've been delivered from slavery of our sin. It brings us to the last word, which is the word propitiation, which means we've been delivered from the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means, that God's wrath has fallen on Christ, that God's wrath has come, the angel of death, the destroyer, It has fallen upon Christ on the cross and not upon us. In every house in Egypt, there was death, either the death of a son or the death of a substitute lamb. But God has substituted his son for us. He provided the blood of of a lamb to cover our sins. And it is to be, as he says here, to be received by faith. That's the basis of it. It's faith. The application of the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, it was an act of faith that the Israelite did. How much faith did it require? Just enough to apply it. Just enough to do it. Just enough to obey. Just enough to believe the word of God and to take him at his word and to do and to obey and to do what God had commanded him. D. Carson, he says this, he says, imagine the conversation between two Israelite fathers on the night of the Passover. One says to the other, he says, are you worried? The other one says, worried about what? Well, worried about the death angel. I mean, you've gotta be worried. You've seen what's happened in Egypt. I mean, crazy things are happening. Scary things are happening. Powerful things are happening. And now Moses says that the death angel has come. The destroyer has come. I mean, you've got three sons but I just got one. The other man says, well, did you do as Moses commanded you? Did you apply the blood? 
Did you take the lamb and did you, sl- did you slay it? And did you apply the blood? Have you eaten the Passover meal? And the other man says, well, yeah, of course I did. I'm not stupid, but this whole thing's pretty scary, right? And the other man says, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God, bring it on. And that night when the death angel passed over, which one of the two men lost his sons? The answer is neither. Neither man lost his sons because death doesn't pass over on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the lamb. It is not the intensity of our faith, but it is the object of our faith that saves. And that is important for us to know because this is where we get our assurance. Our assurance of our salvation doesn't come in the intensity of our faith, but it comes based upon the object of our faith that saves. It comes based upon Christ and his finished work for us. Christ's perfect work, not our imperfect faith, but Christ's perfect work as the Passover lamb. We're gonna close out in prayer. But let me give you just a couple of ways that you can respond. Probably by now, most of you have taken the Lord's Supper as you remember Christ. And as you spend a time, just a few minutes in prayer as a family. This is also the time for us as a church when normally we would take up an offering, we would give, there's offering baskets, we would say, located here and there. But now there's just two virtual offering baskets for you. You can give online through the Point Community Church. Um, Go to our website there, or you can give through the text to give Um, app as well. So we take this time, we remember Christ and what he's done. Let me just ask you this, this morning, as the old song says, have you, have you come to Christ for that cleansing flood? Have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? That's the story. And that's the message of the Passover. And second, let me, those of you that would say, yes, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I remember, I know it's not based upon the strength of my faith. It's based on the object of my faith and Christ is the object of my faith. And let me just remind you again this week that nothing is outside of his control. That when we see that God has taken care of our greatest problem that we would have, which is our sin, then what's COVID-19? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and for your grace for sinners such as us. That God, you the Father would give up your son as as that redemption price, as that acceptable sacrifice, as the substitute Passover lamb, as a propitiation for us. Praise be unto your name. And Christ, thank you. Thank you for going and for dying for drinking on the judgment and the wrath, for taking on the penalty of our sin. Jesus, we worship you. We remember that we too, we've been set free from the captivity of our slavery to our sin, that we've been set free and we've been set free to worship you, to serve you, to love you, to be in relationship with you, Lord. And Lord, we do. We're thankful for times like these, uncertain times that draw us to a certain Christ, a certainty of you, Lord, that remind us of those, that drive us to times of prayer and to study of of the word, Lord. 
Lord, in those times, remind us of your great love and concern for your people. And Lord, we do love you. Help us to be, as we've already said, help us to be just to speak the truth and the good news, the message of peace in this time to our neighbors and those around us, Lord. Help us to have a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence in you and in your sovereignty and in your goodness for us, Lord. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We remember you, Jesus, in your name, amen.